Good morning. If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, okay. If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 3, where we're going to look at one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture, one of the most popular stories in all of Scripture. As you're making your way to John 3, let me say, if you are a guest with us today, thank you so much for being here. We're glad that you uh, carved out the time of your schedule and, and, uh, and came when invited. We hope that you'll uh, join us again real soon. We're glad you're here. Uh, if if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and John chapter 3. We're going to start by reading this text together. Uh, I think you'll find that it's a familiar one. John 3 says this one. says this, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, right off the bat, we need to understand we're being introduced to a very important person here. He says he's a, he's a member of the Pharisees. That means that he is uh, the religious elite of the day. And he's also evidently uh, risen in ranks to power to become a ruler of the Jews. It says in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I want you to notice Nicodemus comes and, and, and initiates conversation with Jesus in a way that we would consider kind, respectful, cordial. We might expect Jesus' response to be something like, well, uh, very good, Nicodemus, you're on the right track. You know uh, the direction things are heading here. Uh, you're very astute. Good job. Instead, Jesus does not respond in kind. We would almost look at what Jesus responds with uh, as almost being a little rude compared to what Nicodemus has just offered. Notice what Jesus says in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus this concept of being born again. It sounds strange, so he's trying to flesh it out. In verse 8, he says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As you approach verse 9, I want you to notice that Nicodemus at this point is beginning to reach sort of a crisis moment. Jesus, he comes to Jesus with respect and cordiality. Jesus responds, you can cut the, the niceties. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, what does that mean? Jesus says, how do you not know what that means? It means that you must be born of the Spirit. And in verse 9, Nicodemus comes to a crisis moment and he says this, How can these things be? How is it possible? In verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know. I love that. Jesus is like, I'm telling you what I know. I know what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. It's like He's almost talking to like an elementary child here, right? I know what I'm talking about. And we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you the earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
In verse 13, here we're going to get the heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3.16, we all know what it says, ends the passage this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Would you pray with me as we start today? Lord, I find myself uh, anxious as we start this, uh, this time in the Word. Anxious because I know that you must do what only you can do in us, Lord. We want to know you, God. Uh, but Lord, these are hard things, dear God. How is a man to be born again, dear Lord? What does it mean that we must have new life? Dear God, I pray that in the next few moments you would help us to understand your Word. I pray that you would open the eyes of the people in this room. And Father God, I pray that you would uh, help me stay out of the way and that you would help me speak with wisdom and clarity so that people can see you and see you very clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a very popular story, but I think there's a lot of things in there that we tend to miss sometimes. As a matter of fact, I think you would probably agree with me, it's the things in life that are right in front of us that we most often miss. For example, uh, have you ever gone to the pantry or to the refrigerator looking for something and you open it up and you look and you look and you look and you just determine it's not in there? Men, right? We do the whole hands on the knees, head, head up, head down, head right, head left, right? We, we, we do that all around and we can't find it. Maybe the most intimidating way this happens is when our wife says to us at the dinner table, will you go and get X out of the refrigerator? And men, what do we do? We walk over there, we open up the refrigerator and we say... I can't find it. We don't have any. And then the most nerve-wracking 15 seconds of our lives happen after that. And when our wife says, <sighs> which means I know we have it, never mind, I'll get up and find it, right? I'll just say this. I, I'm still growing in marriage. I've got a long way to go. The most validating thing in my marriage thus far is when we actually do not have it, right? I'm, uh, there's a lot of pride in that moment. I'm like, oh, told you, right? Never. <laughs> Never mind the nine times before that one, the tenth time, where I actually didn't have it, okay? But I'm still growing. I'll, I'll give you that much. Researchers tell us that the reason why this is, is that so often, if something's not exactly what we expect when we're looking for it, we'll just look right by it, even if it's right in front of our face. For example, let me kind of prove to you what I'm saying. I'm about to, in just a second, have a picture on the screen of a messy bathroom. I want you, in that messy bathroom, to find the toothbrush, okay? Eleanor, show them. Everybody see the toothbrush? How many of you see the small toothbrush up front? Show of hands. How many of you have not yet noticed the big toothbrush in the back? Oh, yeah. You big dummies. No, I'm just kidding. You see what I'm saying? If something's there, but it's not what we expect, we look past it. Thank you, Eleanor. <laughs> Today I want to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is something we all have a little bit of knowledge about, something that we can think about in our minds, but it's my experience that because most all, all, often we expect it to be a certain way, when we actually come across it in Scripture, when we actually come across the good news as Jesus brings it to us, we look right past it because it's not what we were looking for. Today I want to talk to you about Jesus in hopes that for the first time 
you might see what's right in front of your face. With that in mind, I want to walk through John 3, 1 through 16, and I want to walk through it pointing out things that are there that you might be missing. First thing I want you to see this morning from John chapter 3, verse 16 is this. I want you to see what's right in front of your face that is the need for eternal life. The need for eternal life. John 3.16 is pretty familiar territory, okay? We all uh, all know this verse. But because it's so familiar, there are oftentimes times we just look right past what it's trying to tell us. John 3.16 is meant to be the summary verse of everything that happens in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, okay? In other words, it it is the final uh, cake topper, right? To like tell you like this is the, how this story ends. Now, it's the final like shoe being tied right it's the it's everything being laced up and coming together john three sixteen is and we know this and we read it and so often we just read past it that we miss the actual summary what is the summary the summary is this for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life now notice what's right in front of your face the summary is this you have a need That need is for eternal life. And the summary finishes by telling you that not only do you have a need, that need is for eternal life, but that God in Jesus Christ has come to you to meet that need. That is what the gospel is. The good news of how Jesus Christ has come to you to meet a need that you have, the need for eternal life. Now that raises a question for some of us, okay? The question that some of us have when we start talking about why do we need eternal life is the question of why do I need eternal life, right? Like, why why do I actually have to have eternal life? Like, what are you implying by saying that we need eternal life? But I know that's a valid question we should wrestle with. Why do I need eternal life? But the answer to that is somewhat obvious, is it not? It's obvious for a number of reasons. Most notably, it's obvious you need eternal life because you are going to die. Now, I know, I'm aware that this is something I say quite often from this pulpit, that that death certainly awaits you. But can I just tell you, I'm afraid that I have not yet said it enough. You want to know why? It's the most certain thing that's going to happen to you in this life. You will die. As a matter of fact, is so certain that it's one of the only things we can actually count on 100%, such that we make quips like this. only thing that's certain in life is death and taxes, right? But I'm here to tell you, I'm a preacher. There are a lot of loopholes to the whole taxes thing, <laughs> all right? Some of y'all are small business owners, and when I start having this conversation, it makes you really uncomfortable. You're like, well, preacher, now I, I can write off a lot. That was a, tax ex- that was a business expense, right? You don't like joking about that, right? Because you get it hitting close to home. But even taxes, right? There are ways out of it. You can pay a little bit less. You want to tell you what there's no way out of? There's no way out of death. You will die. Because of that, you need eternal life. And you need eternal life because of what happens after you die. Let me pose it to you this way. Have you ever considered the moments after you draw your final breath? It's a somber thought. And I know it's a heavy thought, but let it sit on us for just a second. You approach the end of your life. It's going to come for each and every one of us. We don't know what that looks like for each and every one of us, but you approach the end of your life. And as you get near, the breaths become fainter and fainter. 
and then you cease to live. And in the very moment that you draw your last breath on this earth, what's next? And you know, there are only a certain number of ways that we can answer this, not even from a biblical perspective, but even just from a humanity understanding, right? There's only a certain number of ways that we can answer that. Maybe after that, after that final breath, maybe there's nothing. Maybe you draw your last breath, and your last breath sends you into the void of nothingness for all eternity. Some people believe that. But can I just tell you, that seems kind of depressing for me. Maybe it's not nothingness. Maybe another option is that there's some sort of merit-based eternal reward for those who live. In other words, you live your life and you try to be a good person. And as long as you try to be a good person, when you die, maybe the scales will balance out and you've done enough good to offset your bad and you'll inherit some kind of eternal reward. But let me ask you, how comfortable you feel with those odds? See, because I don't know, know you, but I know, know me. And I'm just telling you, I don't feel real good about the odds that those scales are going to balance out. A, a third option, I think the option Jesus seems to be getting at here, is that when you die, you will stand in judgment in observance of whether you've lived up to the standard of the creator and life giver who gave you life. So Jesus seems to be saying here that when you die, the moment that you die, you will stand in judgment before the life giver. And the question will be, did I measure up to that standard? Let me ask you something. How are you feeling about those odds? You might be saying, well, I'm pretty good. I, I, I know the Ten Commandments. I try to keep them. And, and I understand that. Maybe, maybe you, you would do all right. But let me, think, let me just explain it to you this way. When Jesus came on the scene and started telling about where we're at as approaching that standard, he said things like this. Even though you've never committed adultery, if you lust after another woman in your heart, you've actually committed adultery. You've broken that commandment. And so we may feel like we're on par with that standard. And guess what? Jesus starts talking, and here's what we realize. We're not living up to the standard. And he just keeps talking it gets worse because he starts saying stuff like this that you may have never murdered anyone but if you've ever been angry with anyone in your heart then you're guilty of murder and all of a sudden the standard becomes wider and wider and Jesus is saying here you actually need eternal life because of the certainty of coming judgment you need someone to intervene with, for you because there will come a day when you stand before God and God will ask if you measured up and the answer will ultimately be no. So your greatest need this morning, I want you to hear this, ignore everything else in your life, ignore everyone else in your life. Your greatest need this morning is for eternal life. That's right in front of your face. But I'm scared many of us live and we look right past it. You need eternal life. But there's something else in, right in front of our face in this passage. Not only the need for eternal life, Jesus tells us the condition for the eternal life. He says, okay, here's your greatest need. And you might be saying, this sounds pretty hard. This sounds almost impossible. I, I need eternal life. I need some help. What's the condition? How do I get it? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how you get eternal life. 
He lays out the condition for us. Now, if John chapter 3, verse 16, is the summary of what happened, John 3, verses 1 through 15, is the context, the story of how we get John 3, 16. And John 3, one, verses 1 through 15, is a story about a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is one of the most interesting people in all of Scripture. We only see him in a couple of places. But suffice it to say that Nicodemus is a well-to-do person. He's a member of the Pharisees. Here's what that means. Nicodemus has set his life towards studying the Old Testament scriptures and understanding them. Now, you might be feeling pretty good this morning. You might be feeling kind of, you know, uh, proud. You might say, I've dedicated my life to studying the, the scriptures too. I've read the Old Testament quite a bit. Well, let me ask you this. Have you memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy? No? Okay, I just want to check. You're not on Nicodemus's level. When I, like, when I say church folk, okay, like, he, he's a better church folk than you, all right? And, and like, I know that, that that's tough, but it's true. Like, Nicodemus, as a member of the Pharisees, was someone who dedicated his life to living in such a way that at the end of his life, here's what he wanted to be able to say, I tried my very best to honor you, God, in everything I did, even down to the letter of the law, I tried to be obedient. And this guy has done pretty well for himself in this. He's risen to the ranks of a, a ruler of the Jews. And so he's prominent. As a matter of fact, it almost seems like Jesus should be flattered that Nicodemus came. And here's what I want you to notice. Notice, Jesus isn't impressed with Nicodemus. Because listen, you might be awesome, but there's nothing that you offer to Jesus that's impressive to him. And Nicodemus comes and he says to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because no one can do these signs unless God is with them. Now, this is really important because it seems like what Nicodemus is saying is, we think you're the guy who's going to bring in the kingdom of God by all these signs, right? The Jews believed that there would become a Messiah and he would be a, a sign worker, a miracle worker, and he would usher in the new kingdom, right? And so the, the people begin to talk and they thank Jesus this. And when they when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he says, basically, is that right? Could you kind of verify that? I heard about the whole water to wine thing. You got any more of that up your sleeve? I'm just curious. And I love that Jesus cuts past all of the niceties, and he lays down the condition for eternal life. He says to Nicodemus, you want to talk about heaven, Nicodemus? I'll tell you exactly about heaven, Nicodemus. Only those who are born again go to heaven. So we see the condition here for eternal life. What's the condition? You must be born again. If you write in your Bible, I want you to write this down. Because there is nothing more central to what Christians believe. Jesus does not look at Nicodemus and say, Nicodemus... If you want to go to heaven, you must go to temple twice a week. He does not look at Nicodemus and say, Nicodemus, if you want to go to heaven, you must try really hard. He does not look at Nicodemus and say, you must memorize all of the Old Testament. He looks at Nicodemus and says, if you want to go to heaven, you want to talk about the things of heaven, you must be born again. And Jesus would look at either, any of us and say the same thing. If you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. <clears throat> so he lays down this condition, you must be born again. <clears throat> but can I tell you, this is a pretty confusing 
condition, is it not? You must be born again. Notice what Nicodemus says in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Nicodemus is hearing this and, and he's saying now, this goes against not only everything I've ever believed, but it just doesn't make any sense, Jesus. You must be born again. What kind of nonsense is this? And I love it because Jesus begins to explain it to him. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, what he's saying to, Jesus, to Nicodemus is this, that your first birth is only sufficient for your first life. That birth that you had when you were a little baby that has grown you up into what you are now, it is only good for you to live in this first life. As a matter of fact, Jesus wants Nicodemus to know that that birth of the flesh, it's fading away. It's that Nicodemus right now in his flesh stands condemned, that his flesh is broken. And we are in Nicodemus' shoes because we've already established Nicodemus is better than us. If effort was going to get any of us there, it'd be Nicodemus. But if effort didn't get Nicodemus there, it didn't get us there. And he, Jesus is establishing to us, your first birth is only good for your first life, that you need someone to come and give you new life. That's why he says this, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, that first birth was good for your first life. Something's got to happen between now and the time you die that where you have a birth of the Spirit. Because where the birth of the flesh is broken, the birth of the Spirit is redeeming. Where the birth of the flesh is fading away, the birth of the Spirit never dies. Jesus is trying to say, you need a new birth, Nicodemus. And he goes on and explains to us what that looks like in each one of our lives. Now, please focus in here because I, I don't... I don't want you to think this morning that you are a Christian because you come to church, because you pay your tithe, because you try to be a good person. You are only a Christian if you've been born again, and Jesus is going to tell us what it means to be born again. He says in verse, in verse 5, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? Remember we talked about Nicodemus as someone who knows the Old Testament well. Nicodemus would have understood that this is a, a phrase that is used in the Old Testament prophets when the Spirit of God acts so powerfully upon someone that they are cleaned and restored and made new from the old life. So where he says water, it's, it, what he's trying to say is this, that when you are born of the water, that the Spirit of God acts upon you so forcefully that everything in your life that makes you dirty before God, all of the times that you did not live up to what God commanded, all of those times where Jesus comes up and says that the law condemns you, that Jesus is saying that when the Spirit of God acts upon you, it's like being washed with water so that... Everything that makes you dirty before God is washed away, clean, spotless. The old hymn says it best. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. 
You're washed with water, but it doesn't stop there. After you're washed with water, it says you're born of the water and the Spirit, so that after you're washed clean, the Spirit of God comes upon you and acts so forcefully that the old person in you that wanted to do and wanted to love and wanted to pursue all of those things that made you dirty before God, that person begins to die, and God gives you new life such that the only way we can describe it is this, is that you have been born again. That yes, I am still Dallas standing here today, but I'm not the same Dallas I used to be. Born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you want to make it to heaven, you must be born again. And here's what I love. The way he's saying this, it rules out any other option. There's nothing else you can do. There's nothing else you can do to get there. And Nicodemus is our proof for that. Because if there was anything else you could do, Nicodemus would have done it. Think about this with me. Cordiality with Christ is not enough to save you. Is this not what Nicodemus is? He's cordial with Christ. He's paying his respects to Christ in this moment. He comes and says, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. He's being respectful. Going above and beyond. And Jesus says, no matter that that is not enough, that you must be born again. And the reason why this is important is there are many of us in this room today who have a cordial relationship with Christ. You think he is a good person. You think he is special, even sent from God, and you are respectful. You even set aside time out of your schedule to pay him your respects. But I want you to know that all the respect in the world for Christ will not save you on the day that you stand before God. You must be born again. Notice this, that being a good person will not save you. Nicodemus is literally the best of the best. And in this moment, we have to believe that Nicodemus was in utter shock as he heard this. You want to know why? Because at the time, Nicodemus was a teacher of the people, right? At this time, the Jews were teaching that when the Messiah came back and set up the kingdom of God, that all that was required for someone to enter into the kingdom of God was to, number one, be a Jew, and number two, be semi-obedient. Such that, listen, as long as you were a good person, you would make it into heaven. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, that is not enough. As a matter of fact, I think this is what the whole reference to Nicodemus coming in the dark is all about. Like, I, it may be historical narrative, yes, but in John's gospel, he makes a correlation between darkness and lostness. And you want to know why Nicodemus is coming in the dark? Because Nicodemus thinks he's got it all figured out. But actually, as Nicodemus walks, he's in spiritual darkness lost. And there are people in this room who think they have it all figured out. You pay your tithe. You're faithful to your spouse. You feed the homeless. You serve in church. You do everything to check off the list. And I want you to know that none of that is enough to save you when you stand before God. You must be born again. And I want you to see this, what anyone else's opinion of Jesus is, is not enough to save you. Notice this weird phrasing that Nicodemus comes to Jesus with. He says, we believe that you are a teacher sent from God. Isn't that odd? You know what we would expect it to say? I believe 
that you are a teacher sent from God. You see, Scripture seems to be implying to us that at this point, Jesus is getting a bit of a reputation. And people are beginning to discuss, maybe this is the Savior of Israel. Maybe this is the one who has come to redeem us. And so Nicodemus comes and he says, we believe. And Jesus is saying, no matter what we believe, you must be born again. This is important because there are many here who think they're going to make it to heaven because mama loved Jesus. We think we're going to make it to heaven because you come from a family who's loved Jesus. We think we're going to make it to heaven because you've been coming to this church for so many years that on one of these campuses, at one of these buildings, it's got your name on it. And I want to tell you that on the day that you die and stand before God, none of that will matter. You must be born again. You need new life. You see, the reason so many of us miss the gospel, okay? I started with this, and I'm going to start to wind down with this. The reason so many of us miss the gospel is that we expect it about, to be about self-improvement. We expect it to be about you need to try harder and do better and be better. And Jesus says, that's not what this is about. You don't need new actions. You need new life. Listen to me. You getting to he heaven has nothing to do with your behavior. It has everything to do with your birth. And now everyone in here has the first birth. But we need the second one. Now I want to know, have you ever been born again? I don't want to know how faithful you are attending church. I don't want to know how many good deeds you do. I don't want to know how hard you try. I want to know if you've been born again. That's the condition for the eternal life. Which leads us to the final thing that's right in front of our eyes, the path for eternal life. At this point, Nicodemus has been worked up into a point of despair. And can I just tell you that I hope that some of you in this room have too. I hope that as I tell you, there's nothing you can do to inherit heaven. I hope that you begin to, to burn in your heart and say, well, then how can I ever make it? And Nicodemus comes to this point in verse 9 where he says, how can these things be? Jesus, I, you're saying I must be born again. How can these things be? And Jesus answers Nicodemus and spells out for him exactly how someone can be born again. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The first reason you can be born again has nothing to do with you. It has to do with it. Jesus came to you. Jesus came to you. And now, this is almost a very weird construction that Jesus uses. Has anybody else noticed how odd this sounds? No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended. It's a, there's a reverse, right? That you came down but not up. And, and Jesus seems to be saying to Nicodemus here, Nicodemus, you think that if you work hard enough and try hard enough that you will ascend into heaven like climbing a ladder. You get what I'm saying? He's saying, Nicodemus, you think you can ascend step by step into heaven. 
And that's a, the reason why some of us think this way is this, because this is what every other religion in the world teaches us. Every other religion in the world teaches us that if we try hard enough through our own effort, obedience, and pursuit, there will be a day where we can ascend into heaven. We can find our enlightenment. We can find our eternal reward. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, no one's ascended into heaven. No one has ever been good enough to make it into heaven. But, Nicodemus, the good news is, there is one who's come down from heaven. You see, we're not saved by it because we're going to be good enough to get there. We're saved because Jesus was graceful enough to come to us. And the reason why this is so important is because when you're in a position when you cannot help yourself, you need an outside influence, an outside actor to come in and do something for you. There was a story that was made popular on the West Wing, a late 90s, early 2000s show, it, a really good show, but it, it was, there's a story that was made popular of a man, the man in the hole. And I don't know if you ever heard this story, but there was a man in a hole, fell down the hole, and there were, no, there were no ways to get up. There was no door out. There was no climbing up. He was in the hole, and the man becomes desperate. He begins to yell, help, help, help. And he just day, stays day by day and becomes desperate until his voice begins to grow faint. And there comes by a doctor. And the doctor says to the doctor, Doc, I'm, I'm in a bad way. I can't get out. Can you help me? The doctor writes a prescription and throws it into the hole. He goes on about his business. And the guy says, what good is this going to do me? Being good enough is not going to help. Feeling better is not going to help. I'm helpless. And he begins to yell again, help, 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 until he comes to the point of despair again. And he's, he's given up and a priest comes by and he looks to the priest and he says, priest, can you help me? And the priest says a prayer. Right, does the whole thing and goes on about his way. He says, what good is that? I'm not good enough. I can't, I can't get out. And he begins to grow desperate. And then now he doesn't even yell. He just sits. He sits in what can only be described as a hopeless situation. And then one day, by the grace of God, a friend comes by. He sees the friend. He says, friend, can you help me? And the friend jumps down in the hole. And the guy in the hole says, what have you done? He says, you idiot, now we're both in the hole. The friend looks at him and says, yeah, I know we're both in the hole, but I've been here before and I know the way out. You see, Jesus came to us when there was no way out. and He gave us the way out. That's the first reason you can be saved. And the second reason you can be saved is Jesus looks to Nicodemus in, in, chapter, in verse 13 and 14. He says this, in verse 14 and 15, he says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What's he saying to him there? He says to him, Nicodemus, you remember the story of Moses in the Old Testament. And you might not remember the story, but remember Nicodemus knew the whole Old Testament and he would have recognized it right off. But this is a story where the Israelites people, they, they, they have complained and they have murmured against God and God's wrath breaks out the pe against the people and they send, he sends serpents into the camp and the people are getting struck and bit by serpents and it looks so hopeless that the people are all about to die. They're becoming sick and they cry out to Moses and they say, Moses, save us. 
And God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to take a bronze serpent and I want you to take it to the end of the pole and I want you to take it in the middle of the camp. And the, the implication seems to be the people are all sick and dying, hopeless in the middle of the camp. And he says, Moses, once you put that serpent up, everyone who will look at the serpent will find healing, will find forgiveness, will find redemption. Jesus says to Nicodemus, do you remember this story, Nicodemus? And Nicodemus says, yes, yes, I remember it. He says, Nicodemus, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when he is lifted up, he will grant to all who look eternal life. And get this, Jesus was lifted up. But thank God he was not lifted up on a pole. He was lifted up on two beams and he was held there by three nails. And there Christ came to this earth and he died on that cross so that you can be born again. How can you be born again this morning? How can you have eternal life? Look to Him. Look. It's right in front of your face. The greatest news in all the world that you need eternal life and Christ has come to give it is right in front of your face. All you have to do is look. And so this morning, I believe as I close that there are people in this room who for the first time realize that they need to be born again. That it's not requiring their own effort, it's not about their own obedience, but it's about the grace of God that has come to them and given them new life. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you. Here's what I want you to do. Would you have the courage to look to Jesus this morning? Will you look to Jesus? Will you look to Him and pray something like this? Jesus, I need new life. I want to be born again. I look to you and what you did for me and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Will you look to him this morning? Here's what I want you to do. If, if that's you, when this song starts, everybody's going to stand up. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay seated. And I want you in your own heart right here, right now, to call out to him and say, Jesus, I look to you, I look to you. And listen, who cares what anybody else in this room is going to th- say or think? You might be, well, my friend brought me today. They're going to look at me. Can I tell you why they brought you today? So that you might look to Jesus. They want you to stay seated. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Would you stay seated and would you pray out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to be born again? If that's you, would you do that during this time? And I would pray that if you have enough courage to do that, that after this service you would find me today. Pray with the church. Lord, I know that... um, I have offered but the foolish ramblings of a man. And God, my heart is just burdened that this gospel would be accepted and known. And dear Lord, I pray that there are people in this room, dear God, who need to be born again. They need the life that you're going to offer them. And God, all they have to do is look, God. All they have to do is ask, God. And I just pray that you would do that. That you would move them to, to look and to ask. And dear God, I pray that if there's anyone that remains seated today, and praise this prayer that they would find me afterward and call out to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.